0: Welcome to Rerouting the City with Applied Wayfinding, a spatial experience design practice that makes complex spaces legible. Rerouting the City is a new three part podcast series that navigates how we move around our cities today. Each episode, we invite an expert speaker from across neuroscience, academia, and city planning for a conversation with a member of Applied's team to discuss the new research and technological developments that could help reroute our urban spaces to be more accessible and enjoyable for all their users. Hello and welcome to Rerouting the City, Navigating Neuroscience and Design. My name is India and I'm the deputy editor of Design.io, the Journal of Design, I'm joined today by Tim Fendley, Founder, CEO and Creative Director of Spatial Experience Design Practice Applied, and Kate Jeffrey, who's the Head of School of Psychology and Neuroscience at the University of Glasgow. Kate is a behavioural neuroscientist and her lab is focused on studying cognitive maps, the parts of our brains that underpin a sense of direction and how we locate ourselves in space. Tim and Kate are going to discuss the science behind whether people can truly have a good or bad sense of direction, and the many different ways that we navigate cities and spaces. What does the neuroscience tell us about navigating urban spaces? And how should designers apply this knowledge to make cities and spaces that are easy and comfortable to find our way around? So Tim and Kate, you share very similar interests, but you come from different backgrounds and perspectives. How... How did you meet each other and how have you found those shared and common ground?
1: Oh, I think we met at a conference. Is that right, Kate? And mm-hmm. yes, we found we've got very similar interests, but from a different perspective. Um, my background is in practice and in how do we apply this kind of knowledge and um, how do we make a difference in the world? Um, and uh, Kate, I'm not going to speak for you, but you you were fr- coming from a different perspective of how the how does this how, what's the neuroscience behind it? Yeah, yeah. A,
2: a very different um, perspective because I study rats <laughs> and um, I've done for a long time and we're trying to understand the, the rat brain and the sort of navigation system that's been discovered. And actually the conference where we met, um, I organised because it um, had been coming increasingly apparent to me that what we've been finding out in the rat brain, is <laughs> very, very relevant to understanding how humans navigate, and really wanted to get human navigation specialists um, talking to the neuroscientists. So we, we organized um, a symposium, which I remember as being very interesting because there were people from such different backgrounds, animal neuroscience, animal navigation, human neuroscience, people like yourself, and uh, we had a lot of very interesting conversations, and that's really led to uh, an ongoing interest, I think.
0: And so, first off, how would you rate your own sense of direction? Kate, I know you mentioned that you got a bit lost on the way here this morning.
2: (laughs) Yes, when you ask people, by and large, they they will often say, oh, I'm a terrible navigator, and I I would say that too. But actually, I think I'm probably around about average, which is to say I do get lost quite a lot of the time, um, but I usually manage to find my way to where I'm going. Um, but there are some people who are just super good, and they, they never get lost. And there are some people who are incredibly bad, and um, to the extent that they're um, almost disabled by their disorientation. So there's a very wide range of, of abilities. Yeah, and I would put myself pretty much in the middle, I think.
1: I think I'd unfortunately say I've got to I've got to be pretty good at it, considering my job. Um, but I grew up um, with the sport of volunteering. I did scouting. I grew up map reading. I my job is this so I understand places I'm always watching knowing where I am I'm always the person in the group who's sort of like which way is it now and I'll know which way or which direction it is and I I think um, my experience is a lot of that comes from practice I'm interested and I've learned it's kind of like a learned skill Um, and I've talked to people who say I've got no sense of direction it's a kind of a thing isn't it um, um, but a lot of the time I feel it's, um, and I did read a few papers on this, that innately we've got some similar abilities, the brains are different, but a lot of this is learned. Um, and I would challenge anybody who doesn't think they've got a sense of direction is that when they absolutely need to be the other side of the city, I bet you they can work it out.
2: Yes, I agree. And I think a lot of the difference in individual ability is, um, people just knowing what things, what information in the environment to attend to, and take notice of, and I think some people have maybe been taught to do that when they were young, and you know, and I wonder if our generation, in particular, um, from the days of paper maps, maybe learned to do this in a way that's slightly different from the children these days who grow up with handheld devices, and it's all, it's a different. It's all you know, automated different... and done for them. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So they're. They're learning less. They're learning well. They're learning different things, I think. Right. And and so I think one of the things that you learn when you have a paper map is the importance of aligning the map with the outside world, because you're the one who has to figure out the route on the map, whereas with a smartphone these days that also figures out the route for you. So all you need to do is to know which way you're facing. <laughs> so so yes, I think a lot of individual variation is people um, knowing what to look for, and I I would tentatively suggest for designers that, that that's the thing to focus on is how to get people to notice the, the important information maybe
1: there's another factor um kind of cognitive restriction i studied quite a little bit about how people feel as though they can't do something when they can it's just it's cognitively i'm not able to do that and that well i can't map read is very much a kind of like a barrier um which is kind of like well of course you can um, we've all got this innate ability um, and it's just that how do you get over that restriction how do you show people what some things that we try and do is create interesting pictures of places so that people become engaged with them and therefore then they can learn about their surroundings better.
2: That's really interesting Yeah, I think it's a really good point that that some people um, they, they just go blank when they see a map <laughs> so I think for situations where where they do need a map, so for example, they're, they're walking into a forest and they have you know the map at the start that shows you where the trails go. I think probably um, attending to what information you put on the map that makes it really engaging and, and for them able to relate to it is really important. But the other thing is designing designing the kind of the layout of the world so that you you don't need a map, like it becomes self evident where you are. And I think that's something. We could be thinking about more is is just providing enough information that people can remain oriented without having to consult a man before.
1: I think that is the ideal mm. yeah you don't need information to help you because it just explains itself naturally
2: yes and I do find I think this is one of the reasons that I got interested in trying to reach out to real-world designers <laughs> is that I find I'm often in an environment that's really difficult to figure out which way around you are for example like a train station or a a uh, um, conference centre or, or something where the architecture is such that you look around and you just can't tell which direction is which. And if you get a little bit disoriented, you've had it, you're, then you're lost. And, and I, I think it should be possible not to build really confusing spaces like that.
0: Well, if our ability to learn to navigate is something plastic rather than fixed, then that does suggest that there's no good or bad sense of direction although obviously you can rate it on a scale that there's just badly designed places or hard to navigate places versus well-designed places
1: i think that's very i think that's very true um and i i think it's not until you start to really understand how the brain assesses the environment um can you really start to see how the environment is either easy or difficult we we say it was first coined in the 60s um, but that's often called kind of legibility of an environment. How easy is it to understand, decipher, recognise and use?
2: Yes, yeah. So I think from my perspective, now that we have looked into um, the rat brain, and I should say, incidentally, that rat the rat brain and the human brain is almost indistinguishable in terms of the navigation systems. It's okay. the same same architecture inside the brain. I think the human brain is a bit more sophisticated and we have... A lot of bells and whistles, you know, we've developed language and all of this kind of stuff. But the core machinery um, probably evolved hundreds of millions of years ago. And the really central system that, that we um, have now come to understand quite well is, is this thing called the head direction system, which is like the compass for the brain. And I think one of the core things that we have learned is that if you can... Um, establish, make it easy for the brain to work out which way it's facing, in other words to set this compass, then everything else follows from that. And when I talk to architects and people who are designing for humans, I find there's very little discussion about the sense of direction. So it doesn't seem to be central to design, and I think that's that's possibly the missing ingredient. So I think to make make an environment really legible, what you need to do is to provide information that lets the compass orient itself and then everything else will follow from that.
1: And my, ex- my experience on the, uh, the wide range of environments that we work in um, uh, is that um, we're often dealing with difficulties of layout to do with maybe the way in which an urban, the city is laid out, the, the street pattern, um, or we're dealing with a building that has its entrance in the wrong place. Um, and f- for legacy reasons, history, or poor design, it wasn't thought about. Um, so big example is um, the Barbican. Mm. It's, its entrance is actually was the goods entrance, because the entrance was supposed to be from the water if you've ever been there. You're supposed to get to the water, and then you come in through there. But the, the, the routes through to get to the water were never put in, Therefore, actually, it's nicely hidden away in the middle of that um, development, and and the, it's often struggled with wayfinding. It has still not been solved.
2: Yeah, the Barbican is, is a terrible place to navigate, and I think I think you, you've you've um, hit the nail on the head with the importance of the entrance way, because the entrance is a very salient like when you when you go through the entrance, that's that's kind of salient experience and it becomes an anchor for the internal compass. And then as you're moving around, you're having to kind of track your movements and and update your sense of direction. But um, it got established the moment that you went in. And the Barbican has two problems. One of them is that the entrance is not very visible, and it's not very memorable. And and so it's not such a salient experience. But also, it's quite symmetrical in the way that it's built. So it's Concrete. It's a while since I've been there, so I'm just calling on my rather old memory. But it's, it's, it's concrete and it's kind of rectangular. So if you lose track of your sense of direction, there's nothing obvious that, that reorients you. And so once you've become disoriented, that's it. And then as you're walking around, you're failing to build a proper map of it.
1: And Kate, okay. the impact of that is an uncertainty um, or a, a cognitive load. Oh, I've got to work out where I am again. And, and that makes it feel like a less hospitable, less welcoming place, which obviously is not what the, the, the people who run the Barbican want it to be. So this desire to make places welcoming, um, to spend more time there, it's, it's well understood that's what you want to achieve. But um, I definitely feel, and I don't think there's enough research to point out, that the reaction that people have to finding it difficult to be able to orient themselves and to locate themselves is a barrier to people using those places.
2: Yes, I completely agree. And I've come to the conclusion, mainly just from introspection, I have to say, (laughs) but I've come to the conclusion that if you're in a um, place that is hard to figure out, hard to make a mental map of, you do have this negative emotion that I've called spatial unease, which is, I don't fully know where I am I can probably find my way to places I need to go, but I don't really have a global understanding of where that is. I have to use my smartphone or follow signs or something like that. And my senses, and I would be really interested to try and collect some some actual hard data on this, but my senses that, um, that those become very negatively valenced, in other words, emotionally negative places. And it feels like if we want... And obviously we do want to build places that feel good. We also want to make them legible, to use your terminology.
1: That's really interesting, Kate, because the word that we use is uncertainty. Right. um, Which I think is the same thing. Yes, yes. We're talking about the same factor. Yes. But we we walk around a new place and we will kind of like do an assessment of how uncertain does this make us feel, which is like a measure of legibility. And some places, like um, another example is London's biggest shopping street is Oxford Street. One of the benefits of Oxford Street geographically is it's a long straight street. It's one of few long straight streets in London. And therefore it's pretty certain when you're on Oxford Street, you're on Oxford Street and you're not going to get lost. So that's one of the reasons why I think it's become such a retail centre.
2: Yeah, that's, that's that's interesting. Although you can get lost if you forget wh- whether you're going east or west along it. <laughs> you can come out of the shop um, and go the wrong way, yes. but then
1: you can quickly find out, hang on a minute, I don't recognise a lot of the landmarks yes. down here, which is another yes. factor in, in navigation.
2: Yeah, no, thing. you're quite right. And I, I think these long linear features, I think, so we're just beginning to understand how the brain processes this type of thing, but I think we're going to find that, those are very important in, in spatial mapping. And when we look at animals, um, for example, we find that um, they'll often use uh, things like rivers to to help them navigate. There's been a, a beautiful study of pigeons by Dora Biro in Oxford who found that, that pigeons who are flying long distances will use motorways to help orient. So if you track them, you can see that they're following these these big roads. Seriously? And yes, yeah. So I think it makes sense because a, a long... So they're using whatever they can find. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But particularly long, these long linear features are very good for setting the compass because um, it, it's very easy to, um, to work out which way you're facing relative to something that's long. Whereas if something is a point-like landmark like the BT telecom tower or something, yeah, yeah. you might be able to see it from miles away but it doesn't necessarily help you know which way around you're facing unless you've also know where you are so so it's you've got another landmark to create that's right trigonometry with yeah Yeah. that's right
1: well that also comes from the observation in our experience of the desire people have for long vistas is the further they can see in a distance and in terms of a direction the more confident it makes them feel I mean I think that comes back to when we learned our navigation skills on the savannah we could always see great distances um, and so mountaintops could become those landmarks that you could find your way back home, yes. sort of thing. Yeah. But now our cities are um, rabbit warrens, mazes. You know, we're really stuck in little alleyways. We're not... I, my perception, I don't have any research on this, but my perception is is that it's slightly unnatural to us, um, that we don't, we can't see where we are. So we're feeling a bit more threatened, we're feeling a bit more closed in, we're feeling like we're in a deep forest.
2: Yes, yeah. Well, I think we can now explain that in terms of this compass system, the head direction system in the brain, because the head direction cells, each cell has its particular direction that it likes, <laughs> and when the rat faces in that particular direction, a particular cell will become active, and all of the cells together like account for all of the 360 degrees that you could be facing. and. The, the exact direction that each cell likes can vary from one environment to the other. So it might be one direction in one room and a different different direction in a different room. But we have found that if if a rat can walk from one room to an adjacent room, so the first time it ever encounters the second room it's just walked from the first room, then the head direction cells will align themselves in the same direction in both of those rooms. So it looks like the, the brain is... Uh, wanting some consistency and the way that it gets that consistency is by tracking the movements that the rat made So all it did was step through the doorway So it, it knows that the rat hasn't turned around so that north in the first room is the same as north in the second room and, and so on and so on but um, Because you're just relying on this tracking of Movements and you know tracking of whether you turned your head and all of this kind of stuff. It's quite vulnerable So if you're walking through several rooms and you get a little bit disoriented, you go around one too many corners or you had to go around a staircase or something, you can very quickly disconnect the head direction orientations in the different rooms. And so then you end up with a fragmented map. So there isn't the same directional alignment in all of the rooms. So I think what you're describing with the cities and the little boxes and the lack of vista spaces is the fact that the head direction system has really had to rely on this not very good quality information to try and get alignment in all of those spaces, and it often doesn't work very well. And you just end up with wrong alignments, and therefore your map's a bit scrambled. And, you know, you could easily solve that by making more vista spaces so you can see how the rooms are related to each other through the glass wall or, you know, whatever.
1: Another little example for me is New York. I've done a lot of work in New York, and of course it's got numbered streets and numbered avenues which they give other names to just to confuse you um but I've often walked out of a building on one of the streets and thought I don't know which way I'm facing because all the streets in New York pretty much look like all the streets in New York yeah
2: yeah that's right
1: (laughs) and I go to a junction and then I'm like I don't know which way is north and if I might be able to see a landmark that could do that for me um but I'm often then really disoriented and then I'm looking at the street numbers to go, hang on a minute, the streets go that way and that goes that way. But I still don't know which way is north. And yes, I'm feeling yeah. very... New York's a challenging place to be on the street. But I think it's... That that grid structure's got strength, but its, it's similarity, therefore, has kind of got weaknesses.
2: Yes, yes. And also... We evolved numbers and a language and so on very late in the piece, so you know within the last maybe hundred thousand years or so. So the head direction system quite possibly doesn't um, know how to use numbers to orient itself, or or indeed language. So you might be able to point out north to somebody and say that way is north, <laughs> but that's, can that orient itself? That's fascinating. I
1: think so don. Overcomplicate the codes. You can't have a completely coded system because that's requiring you've got to use a lot of logic in your brain to that's then right. work it out. It's yes. not innate.
2: Yes. So really, we evolved to use natural features, and 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 that comes very na- very naturally as you'd expect. So I grew up in a very um, mountainous kind of country, New Zealand. And the the town where I grew up is surrounded by hills and and each of the hills looks different and you can kind of see one or two or sometimes, you know, all three of them. Um, And if you're on top of one of the hills, you can also see the harbour, which is a long, linear feature. So really, you never really get disoriented in in that city because you can always, wherever you are, see a global landmark that, that orients your compass.
0: And so with this studying that you're doing, this research that you are discovering about head cells and direction. How is that something that you've been incorporating into your practice? Do you think that these are things you've known instinctively or from uh, speaking to users of spaces? Or do you think this is something that's not being discussed enough in the uh, kind of spatial design arena?
1: Uh, I think absolutely. I think, Kate, you've already said, um, urban planners and architects who are often creating the environment haven't had the benefit of this knowledge um so far and i think i think one you're on a mission to how do you share this and i think that's fantastic we definitely feel this and and our job is often maybe making amends for some of that bad design bad design poor design or design that doesn't understand the importance of of some of these factors Um, so we're often making amends and what we're trying to do is we come in and we try and simplify codes we try and uh, amplify landmarks because we know that those will act as natural kind of like markers along a journey or, or to understand a space. Or we will try and amplify entrances and and create that you are now entering this domain. It's time to switch on a different set of head cells, <laughs> <laughs> which I think yeah. is what you're saying happens. Yes. And that's kind of what we're trying to trigger. Is and so when we did Legible London, we said you're now entering Soho. This is now the Soho area of London and therefore you need your Soho map. And and um, that is such a difficult-shaped environment with lots of little rabbit warrens. Your, your orientation um, kind of loses it a little bit.
0: And I think, I mean, tell us more about Legible London, because I didn't realise until we met that it had a name. I just thought, oh, it's the, the fun maps that are everywhere.
1: <laughs> fun maps, I love that. Um, oh, Legible London is a internal name. We just didn't think it's you needed to explain the name of it to the public. It should just be there when you need it. Um, It's aiming to be predictable. In other words, to be wherever you you are going to need help and information, you'll find it. And that is a response to reducing uncertainty, is what we're talking about. It's based on a structure of the observation that London has an orientation system that wasn't really being highlighted, which is it's built on a set of villages, um, villages that have character. They've got names that are unique. That often you've there's books out there which we actually we bought them all and studied them. Of what do these villages represent to people in their minds? What does Soho represent? What does Mayfair represent? Um, there are other places that are newer that represent less. So we wanted we built a system that highlighted that organisational structure, and I remember seeing some studies of um, place cells, Kate, where there are different scales of maps in your head, and what was fascinating was that we developed Legible London based on a scale of street level and landmark level um, neighbourhoods, which are little small neighbourhoods and then you've got bigger areas, villages Um, and it kind of maps these diagrams we saw from very recent research of the human brain that you've got different levels of place cells so you mm. understand you know where do you live oh san francisco or oh, whereabouts oh actually it's not san francisco it's oakland or oh, whereabouts in oakland and then in a neighborhood in oakland but what you'd say in context is that you live in san francisco because you're looking at somebody going you're not going to know what oakland is so mm. you you kind of like you have these zonal area structures in our urban form. And what All we did to Legible London was realise that a lot of people navigated using those, and yet they weren't appearing, more obviously. So we turned up the volume and used those.
2: Right. One of the things that um, was a revelation to me about the, the Legible London project was the, the totems, you know, the, the maps, the, the sort of street-level maps. And I think it might have been at this conference where, where we first met that I learned that Around about 75% of people like to have the map oriented so that um, what they're looking at matches what is in front of them, so what they call head up. And 25% of people like north to be up, I'm guessing that that 25% is slightly older adults who learned as children to use paper maps or something i'm, I'm not sure it's just the case
1: <laughs> well actually i can tell you it is exactly that mm-hmm. um interesting. it's um, most of the people who said no these should need to be north actually um were trend orienteers often anybody in the military
2: interesting interesting because i'm one of those 25 percent and i get tremendously confused when i look at a, a map that is head up i have to look at the map and try and work out where north is on that map so that I can put it in my mental map. But I thought it was very interesting that, that there's this difference, and that corresponds to something that we've found inside you know, the rat brain, which is that some things are stored relative to each other in the outside world, and some things are stored relative to the, the rat's own current location, so it's called egocentric if it's related to the rat's own body, and allocentric if it's out there in the world. And it was really a revelation to discover that there's this allocentric representation, that the, the rat has a stored map of the world that, that functions no matter you know, um, how the rat has been walking around and so on. And that really, um, back at the time when it was discovered in the 1960s, psychology didn't really believe in these kinds of internal representations inside the brain. So that really over, uh, overturned decades of psychological thinking. And I think it was why the discovery of these cells in the brain, the place cells, won you know, a share of the Nobel Prize because it didn't just tell us about navigation, but it also told us about how the brain you know, makes knowledge of the world um, and also uses that to organise memories.
0: That's fascinating because I grew up in a military family so I'm very much a, I want my map to be facing north. I find it really weird and disconcerting because I, you know, I love my mapping apps, but they try and turn you around in these weird ways. And I'm like, no, that's not right. Like, I want the compass back on, please. What? My
1: hypothesis is that when you asked your first question, um, are you good at map reading? I think you're probably better than normal and both of you because you've understood how a map works in the north. Um, way, whereas a lot of the people when we did research we met people who were like, oh I can't read a map but they would go up to Legible London and immediately go, oh that's where we are and that's where that is, and they immediately read it, yeah, and yeah. our view was, we're better off helping those people than the people who already have some mobility
2: Yes, yeah, that does make sense I mean, one, one, one way to accommodate both would be to um, align the the, the totem, you know, the, the street map so that head up and north up are the same direction. <laughs> we tried that, yeah. We, we tried that. Does, that, yep. does that work?
1: We tried one project where we had everything facing north, yes. Mm. Yep. In fact, Princeton University is nearly all of them are north-south. We couldn't get away with all of it, but yeah, well, that's it, because then that helps create a consistent picture yes. every time, yeah you know, which is what you lose from the heads up. So it's all a trade-off.
0: Along with these head cells and these internal and external maps. What other parts of the brain are involved in navigation? Is there memory? Are there other senses or does colour have an impact?
2: Yes, I mean the more the more we investigate this, the more we discover that I think almost every part of the brain is involved. (laughs) Because so these place cells I haven't really talked much about those, but they're cells that become active when the animal goes to a particular place. So we've got head direction cells that are active when it faces a certain direction, but place cells are when the rat goes to that place. And they were discovered in this part of the brain called the hippocampus, which we have long known as is really important for memory and remembering your you know, the things that have happened to you in your life. And we now are understanding that the brain has decided to put those two things together in evolution and that makes perfect sense because when something happens to you you know you nearly get eaten by a lion or something it's really important to know where you were (laughs) when that thing happened so that you know not to go back there or or if you go back there, you know what expectations you have about what might happen and so on so um, so so those two things go together but also the parts of the brain that are figuring out your goals like what do you want you know I'm hungry right now where's the nearest cafe um, I need to post a letter, where's the nearest post office, and all of that kind of stuff. So um, huge, huge parts of the brain are involved in the, in the navigation system and, and um, in recalling where you um, have been, knowing where you are now, planning where you want to go, um, updating your map when you discover that something's wrong or something's changed. It's, it's very, very busy.
1: When we're developing a wayfinding system for a, a building or a campus or a city, we, we do an assessment of how legible we think junctions, locations, landmarks or routes are. And actually, I think what we're doing is we're trying to assess that mixture of inputs and characteristics that means that this one's really memorable, you know, which could be all sorts of... Um, we see it as it's all sorts of factors. It could be light, it could be smell, it could be sound... It could be the environment, it could be width of the road, it could be the, the, the colour or shape or the activity that's happening there. Um, and that's obviously really quite three dimension, four dimensional, mm. quite flexible. Um, and so, what we do is we often come along and we'll map a place and look at, well, we think these areas are really easy to remember. We think you'll make place cells easy here. These ones, really hard to make place cells uh, that will stick.
2: Is that because they they're kind of unremarkable, or they look like other places, and there's confusion? Or all all of the, that, yes. Right, yeah. Right.
1: Lack lack of character, um, or similarity. So often with architecture, there's very similar streets, so they all look the same.
2: Yes, we've found that that place cells and rats also get confused by the self similarity in the environment. Um, it's just it's as if the same map is is just recurring over and over, and so I think you know, you've hit the nail on the head with trying to identify what, what it is that makes environments distinctive. And I don't think we've got to the bottom of it yet for humans, because what we logically think might make a place distinctive isn't necessarily what the brain actually evolved to do, you know, a million years ago. Maybe it doesn't care about the beautiful sculpture or the you know, the, the park bench or the little details that that for us seem like they should be important. Maybe the mapping system doesn't care about those little things. It cares about mountains and rivers and and so, on, so
1: and that's why we started to put little drawings of buildings and symbols on the map. Not all the time, because then it becomes overload. But we put the ones on that we thought will act as the landmarks better. And we did those in 3D as little drawings. Because it's mm-hmm. kind of like, well, you know, it is Selfridges and it looks a bit like this as a piece of architecture. You're not going to miss it if you were then walking down Oxford Street. Um, so we use techniques like that to then reinforce those landmarks.
2: Right, right, and I think that's a particularly good example because a building is a large topographical feature in, in the landscape and it probably is something that we're innately more predisposed to, you know, to to anchor our maps with.
1: And my so. personal experience is, like I said, I'm a good orienteer, but I do get lost and I get very angry when I get lost because I can't believe I've not got it right. <laughs> and I realise that I will have come across a junction that I think is that junction, but it's not, it's the next one. And I've assumed that was the one that my memory has told me and I've taken it with, you know, uber confidence. But it was wrong because my play cells weren't clear enough yes, or I didn't decipher, yeah. I didn't realise there was a similar one. Yeah, yeah. And I've felt that, I've done that and thought, because we have these conversations, i thought, what happened there? I've missed that junction. Yeah. I got the wrong one.
2: Yeah, I do that a lot with... Um, direction. Um, so for I did it coming here actually, it was why I got slightly lost. I come out of an underground station and I think I'm facing one way and I'm actually facing a different way. And you way. charge off. Uh... And I charge off <laughs> confidently. And because I'm confident about which way, confidently wrong about which way I'm facing, I look at the landscape and, and I fit it into my map. So it seems to fit my memory as well. And it's not until I notice the mismatch with what my phone is telling me that I think some one of us and then is wrong. you've got
1: this battle going on <laughs> in your brain going, I can't be wrong, I can't That's be wrong. Right. That's, I've been yeah. reinforced I by that. I was so
2: confident, yeah.
0: But this is why, you know, the more we know about the brain and so eyewitness statements can be so difficult to actually get an accurate read on because our brain fills in these gaps and, I mean, Kate, you'll know much more about this than me, but heuristics, these mental shortcuts we make that allow us to move around quickly to make quick decisions, which is really useful a lot of the time and saves us a lot of cognitive effort but if you misfire and you pick the wrong street or the wrong junction you do get this stressful experience getting lost is that do we know if that creates like a particular reaction in the brain apart from our anecdotal experiences of finding it really frustrating what do the rats do when they get lost
2: (laughs) so I think I think there is a natural stress reaction to getting lost, and the first thing that has to happen is you recognise that you're lost. So you know prior to that time, you might have been um, confident in your assessment of where you were, but wrong. Um, and like in the example that I gave, when I was walking confidently the wrong way and fitting what I could see into what I was expecting, that that confirmation bias is one of those heuristics, and that can get you. Um, a certain way into believing that you know where you are and then when you discover that you're completely wrong I think that's a, a massively stressful event and we know from lots and lots of studies of stress in humans that there are all sorts of biochemical reactions to that so you get release of adrenaline and stress hormones and you get frustrated and, and so on and so on. Some people who um, are either constitutionally not very good at navigating or, or have the confidence problem that you mentioned earlier Tim where they think that they're not good and therefore they don't really try they're cognitively blocked those people can become so stressed and um and so um disturbed by the experience of getting lost that sometimes they just don't like to leave the house or they they don't like to go shopping or they don't like to travel or you know it can be quite quite disabling so i think getting lost is is really a stressful experience and when you think about The evolutionary origins of that, that makes perfect sense because you could die if you got lost, if you couldn't find your way back to the settlement or whatever.
1: The other thought here is just um, we do a lot of work as we're designers. We do a lot of work. um, There's a wonderful book, Daniel Kahneman, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, two types of brain processes. Um, We see that in how people navigate. So when you're reasonably confident of your route, you've done it before, you want to be in your thinking fast mode you're not even actually aware, you're just innately knowing I know where to go. That's kind of like what happens on a commute. Um, you know how it works. You're in autopilot, right? Mm-hmm. What it also means is that if there's a better way, you're not even thinking about it. Because the brain just wants to keep doing the same way because they don't have to think about it, according to Daniel Kahn. Yes,
2: yeah. So so we have uncovered these two systems in the, in the navigation system in the brain too. So... There is a kind of an autopilot, as you, as you describe it, system called the striatum, which comes into play when you are on a very familiar route, you've done it before, your brain has recognised that this is the optimal route between these two places. You don't want to spend time thinking about it. So you anchor your actions to the landmarks that you can see. For example, you just know you have to walk down the street to the corner, turn right, carry on to the big tree, you know, and, and so on and so on, so it's, it's completely automatic. And then there's the effortful, conscious thinking type of navigation which is involving this hippocampal system of the play cells and this is where you need to call to mind your internal map. And this might come into play, for example, when you were trying to commute and there were roadworks or something and you couldn't take your usual route. Now you have to think, actually where am I and which would be the next shortest route? Yeah. Um, so you're, that's, that's the thinking slow. Uh, and, I think we're constantly interplaying between those two things. And also there's some evidence that people constitutionally just differ in how much they, they rely on one or the other. So some people are a bit more inclined to, to use the root system, to use the landmarks, um, to base their, um, their kind of navigational planning on a remembered sequence of actions. And other people are constitutionally slightly more likely to maintain a kind of a global awareness of where they are and to use their internal map and to navigate that way and so when you're designing to help navigators you need to kind of think about both of those modes of navigation and provide for both types of people in a way that's not um, disrupting the other <laughs> which I think is you there know, isn't a way. right
1: or a wrong way it's how can you have us we've often tried to design a system that can handle different people's navigational strategies mm. well when so, we when we design the kind of like the, the city systems like legible london and we've We've done that in many other cities too. We just got Madrid going in, which has been fascinating. We actually, those, we call them the monoliths. um, We designed them to answer only four questions, which is, where am I? (laughs) Where is it? Um, What else is around here? And how do I get there? And that was it. And um, because I don't believe you can, uh, that's already a lot. And if we can get it to deliver the answers to those questions, we've got people really gaining a lot more confidence in in how they move around. Mm. And the what else is around here was the little nudge to say, there is another tube station there that you could walk to, or there is an interesting street down here. What we're trying to do is to design something that draws them in to get them to in the thinking slow mode to analyze what's going on. Oh, I'm here and that's there, because that's a thinking slow side of the brain but then when you're doing that if you i believe that if you really engage somebody's mind they'll learn they'll start to take it in and they'll start to suggest there are place cells and things i might want to do on this map and i'm a bit aware okay it's to my right oh and that oh that's to my left and we've definitely we've recorded people using things like legible london and we've definitely seen that that happen
2: I guess what you're doing is providing people with information not just about the route but about the you know the the surrounding and therefore they can make a map so which I think is amazing and I think it's it's been an incredibly useful system I just have one one comment though on the four things that you provide so I noticed that uh, which way you're facing is Is not on that list. Uh, Well,
1: the where where are you oriented? Yes, I I meant to say because it does include um, you are here and this is the way you're facing.
2: But does it include um, and that direction is north?
1: It does, and we experimented with a map on the top, which was north, and the map below, which was heads up, and we experimented with that. They took that on the street, and we confused the hell out of people.
0: What I'm interested in, because Kate, it sounds like you're like what you're saying is there is a universal comp- internal compass, a universal sense of direction that all humans and rats share. But what about the are there cultural differences? Because Tim, you are designing not just for London. You've been designing wayfinding systems all over the world, and colors symbols often carry different cultural meanings is that something you think about and then you also have people visiting these cities from different countries so you can't rely too much on language which is why i said the maps were fun because i love those little pictures i just thought they were a nice treat i didn't realize they were actually (laughs) serving um... they were there for a reason
1: (laughs) (laughs) um absolutely that really i think comes into cultural background where as we grow up we learn environmental codes what do things mean and if you go to a different um, country a different culture those codes could be different Um, some of those are pretty common Um, one way street pretty much guess that wherever you are other ones you can be miles off something written in a foreign language to you to your own can be very difficult Um, but things like i mean there are things in nature relating to things like black and yellow has proved to be a warning colour mix in nature. It's colour of bees and animals. And I think I saw a piece of research once that they tried to take yellow off the front of trains and research showed that that was the safest colour to paint the front of trains. So I think some of that colour recognition and what the codes mean is innate, but a lot of it is cultural, um, of understanding what's the environment, this is the way this place works. Part of going to a different city is you suddenly aware of all these different codes and different ways of doing things, and you've got to learn them.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's not just the codes either. I think um, depending on the type of um, city that you come from, you may just navigate slightly differently. So if you come from a, a grid city, for example, then you think about how to um, communicate navigational instructions differently than if you come from a, a much more sort of European-type piggledy-piggledy um, city with a complicated topography and, and all of that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I think culture um, does add another dimension to humans that, that we don't see in animals. But, you know, the, but the placent head direction systems, particularly the head direction system, that was probably one of the very first things that ever emerged in evolution. So we found head direction cells in fruit flies. So we know that that must have evolved probably hundreds of millions of years ago. So it's very, very fundamental. And that's why I think it's so important, because everything that evolved after that kind of built on on that basic knowing which way round things are. But there really Keeps hasn't
1: them. been a debate about this in the urban design and architectural communities. No. Has there? No,
2: that's right. There um, hasn't
1: been, let's design the building around how we build the entrance. We make the entrance really obvious. We make the building then really obvious the other side of that entrance.
2: I mean, that was something that was notably missing from Kevin Lynch's characterization of the legible city. He identified several things that we now know the brain is interested in, you know, the, the nodes and the edges and the, you know, the paths between things and the districts and, and so on. Those are Those are things we've We've seen cells and rain interest in those things, but the one thing that he didn't highlight is a compass direction on top of that that helps make sense of it all. And so, you know, maybe his book needs to be rewritten with another chapter because, <laughs> in other respects, it's been tremendously influential. And, and but it was it know, was um, after
1: he wrote that the um, play cells were uncovered, so and he kind of like observed people's ability to to misunderstand. Slow curving streets, you know. In, in when he studied Boston, um, the angled and the slow curving streets would disorient people. Yes, they wouldn't be able to piece it together as yeah. easily. Yeah, we've really noticed that. You put a curve into something, and the brain doesn't really recognize it very easily.
2: No, that's right. I mean, I think a lot of people have the difficulty that, that I certainly have with London, where in your mental map the Thames runs east west across London, and and you put all of the buildings, you know, the Houses of Parliament, so on, along that. But in actual fact, of course, the, the Thames does a huge right angle bend and the houses of Parliament run north-south. But even though I logically know that, I cannot convince my mental map part of my brain to update with that information. It's just it's decided to use the Thames to organise everything, and as far as it's concerned, my brain thinks the Thames runs east-west. So we've
1: we've we've asked that question lots we have found over 50% of people think Houses of parliament runs east west yes yeah. yeah
2: i'm glad i'm not alone no
1: <laughs> no and i, th- I don't think the tube map reinforcing that has helped
2: that's right yes and i have because our image
1: we also found doing legible london that 44% of people were using the tube map to walk with um, i was just going to so ask they, about they that they wanted yeah. a tool they tr- they got the tool that they trusted but it's completely not built for walking with. But they're going to try and use it anyway. Right, right. Um, you know.
2: <laughs> yes, because they, they, I guess they have a, a a mental schema for what a map does, and a, and a, normally a map has locations that are related to each other, where the directions are, are correct in the map. And so they're trying to use this this topological map where the directions aren't correct. And. Um, and if
1: you look, it's Westminster, and it goes down across, and the river comes across right. on the tube map. Huh.
2: So maybe that's why I've that's... got that wrong. Um, and the
1: other thing, here's a, sorry, I know we're going a bit off-piste, but when people create a mental map and then the world changes, I've found that your mental map doesn't change very quickly. Like you remember old places that have gone, the landmarks gone, but you still think of them as that.
2: Yes, yeah, I think, I think that's true. So the, the brain is constantly having to update it, its memories But that process, you know, it also um, retains a memory of what things were like before. And it has to build a kind of a layered memory where, you know, oh, there used to be something rather here, but now there isn't. And, and, you know, we could could speculate as to why we didn't just evolve the capacity to completely forget what things used to be. And I guess the answer is probably because sometimes things go and then they come back. Like, you know there's a, a river which dries out in the summer but comes back in the winter or something like that. So it's it's adaptive to remember not just what was the state of things the last time you were there, but what, what has it been like in the past.
0: almost running out of time here, but I've got to ask one last question. How, as well as designing maps for so many different audiences, are there ways of designing maps to make them more accessible to those who might be visually impaired or have mobility issues or... Uh, different kind of cognitive challenges—is that something that you think about? I assume it is. And how is that expressed in design, and what do we know about designing for different abilities?
1: I think it's. I, I think there's two sides to that. One is the cognitive challenge. I think Kate, you've talked about different people have different um, abilities, learnings, um, or um, disabilities in how they can think. I think we've done. Um, as much as we have tried as much as possible to cater for the people who find it harder to navigate first that's really been our approach Um, we've kind of left behind the military who knows how to get around I'm not they're gonna they're gonna find their way but it's the person who's really unconfident and it's more about anxiety tackling that they can't work it out they don't think they can and how can we help them reduce that anxiety so that that we've got, also we're doing a project at the moment where we're finding a lot of people not wanting to go on walking paths because I don't know um, which way it is and I'm worried about all the other people on that path. And it's like, that's a shame. Mm-hmm. We should, we should these people should be able to do this. So I think that's that's one side of it is always think about who finds this really hard to understand and how do you work really hard to make it easy. I think the second part is in terms of your, your input, your disabilities or your movement disabilities it's it's there's a huge range and that's often tackled best by different tools that that they're using to be able to tackle that so if we can give um, directions how can we maybe put that into audio Um, or how can we put it into a format that suits their ability so um, some people have got tunnel vision they want everything tiny other people need it really high contrast and really big. Mm. So, what you want is the interface of you how you're giving people that information to adjust to them. Uh, and when you're putting physical things in the environment, that's hard to do. So, you've always got to do a trade off. Um, but new digital tools are absolutely fantastic and you'll be able to respond to that.
2: So, I was wondering actually about the emerging technologies like augmented reality and so on. Is that going to make things easier?
1: Yeah, I don't think it's maybe the ones that you think. So we've worked with people with um, basically sign readers. So glasses, they look like normal glasses and they press a button and it actually can audio read what they're looking at, which gives Mm. them such an ability in a train station to understand what's going on. And um, what we realised is if you design the typography in a way that the reader can't read, they can't understand it. (laughs) So, we've got to connect with the ability of that reader. So, um, that was something interesting for us to find out. Um, So, there's, and we've worked with a number of organizations who are developing tools that handle different types of disabilities. Um, We're working at the moment with Princeton University. We've just launched an app which focuses on routing that takes you along on gradients that you want to be handling. So you can choose the kind of gradients and it will route you along the right route mm. according to that gradient. Now that is environmental knowledge that most people wouldn't have. Yeah,
2: yeah, the
1: university, we've got a plan that we do know that. So the question there is how do we get that quality data out to somebody who needs it? And a digital tool is the best way of doing that. Also on the map, um, we started. We worked on lots of different ways of indicating. We did. We did a whole accessible map for Central Park where we indicated the incline and we indicated the quality of the path. So if you're in a wheelchair, I don't want to go up a steep hill. And mm-hmm. on a map, it's hard to see a steep hill.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But we, we tried some coding of it and there had to be a key. That means thinking slow. You've got to learn it. But we, we wish there was a faster way of doing it and we're searching for it.
0: That's fascinating, especially the sign reader glasses. It's like alt text, but in real life. Um, thank you both so much. I'm afraid we're out of time. I feel like we could do an entire series on this, but it's been an absolute pleasure hearing both of you speak. You've been listening to a Desenyo podcast. For more podcasts, visit DesenyoJournal.com. This podcast was hosted and edited by Desenyo. The panel was selected by Applied Wayfinding and Cameron PR. Editing was by Evie Hall and Laura Chapman, and hosting by me, India Block.